I'm Derek Thompson, the host of the podcast Plain English. We tackle technology, politics, culture, history, everything that's happening in the world and why it matters. New episodes of Plain English drop every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade, Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. In L.A. this week, Kevin Van Valkenburg is being a sports writer. He's covering golf, asking questions to Tiger Woods, even putting Los Angeles datelines on his stories. But the sports writer in this case is also a very interesting story himself. This month, Van Valkenburg announced a job change on Twitter. He is leaving ESPN, where for a decade he was part of a magazine feature writing crew that included Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham for the golf podcast network and media company No Laying Up. Now, if you're not a golf person, the No Laying Up podcasts are hosted by a bunch of very funny and talented guys. They tweak the golf establishment. They have built a giant audience that includes the golfers themselves. But when I met Kevin at a hotel near Riviera Country Club, the first question I had for him was, why? Why was this the time to leave a sports writing gig that was something close to his dream job? KVV and I talked about that and trying to write great features versus great columns. We also talked about the big stories he's covering right now year two of Live Golf, that Netflix golf series that came out this month, and covering Tiger Woods in a period where he may be even more interesting than he was when he was winning every major. Sports writer, please step up to the podium. It's your turn to be grilled. Here's Kevin Van Valkenburg. All right, Kevin, you've got a new sports writing job. You left ESPN, where you worked for a decade and change, for no laying up. Why'd you leave? You know, I, gosh, I left because I really wanted to write about golf and do something kind of different with my career. And I had these friends who'd had this media startup for a number of years. That's really not a startup anymore. It's kind of a major force in golf uh, media journalism, I guess, uh, if you could call it like a journalism analyst hybrid. And they had sort of said to me after I'd probably done a bunch of, you know, a hundred podcasts for free for them, like, why don't we do this and pay you to do it? And so in February, I, I told ESPN, yeah, I think I'm actually going to do this for my job now. And, uh, you know, I, it's been great and thank you for everything, but, uh, this is kind of the next chapter for me. For listeners who are not golf people, no laying up starts as a Twitter account in 2013 Correct. Quickly becomes a website and a podcast and, as you say, a full-blown media company. Why was it so popular? I think that it was friends talking about golf in a way that felt really relatable, that felt 
uh, young but smart, not sort of, you know, stupid. And I think that what a lot of media is now, and I think that like The Ringer is a good example of this, is like a lot of people just want to like have their friends talking about sports. It's kind of what was the appeal of Twitter before it became like this hell site was that you could feel all the time like you were cracking jokes and and being serious one second and silly and dumb the next. And that's kind of, I think, what knowing up is sort of appealing to golf fans is like they just want to feel like you're hanging out with people whose takes that you enjoy and every one of us hopefully has a little bit of different strengths and different uh you know experience with stuff and it's you know it's become the most downloaded golf podcast in you know in sports and really like a top 10 sports podcast which is kind of wild for you know something that started from like friends at university university of miami ohio and now is like hiring away people from espn People were interested in golf or wanted to get interested in golf, but they just wanted a different kind of entry point to the sport. Yeah. Golf in general, right. Is pretty, uh, you know, crotchety and, <laughs> and stiff. <laughs> and so, uh, the, and yet a lot of people who are, you know, my age and younger play golf and drink beer while they're playing golf and, you know, crack jokes and gamble. And so all of that, I think was sort of, maybe not being served by a lot of mainstream uh, media companies. I mean, in particular, like the television stuff, which was very much gravitated towards your 58 and you're, you know, on your third home and your kids are in college. Like that didn't really resonate with a lot of younger golf fans who'd grown up being drawn to Tiger as part of, you know, wanting to get into the game. And so I think there was just like a really a hole in the marketplace that, you know, my friends, Solly and Tron and, and, randy and neil and dj eventually all filled and so you know it's been kind of fun to sort of hopefully be the next wave of that and a big moment for them is golfers not only start listening to the podcast they start coming onto the podcast and doing these really long interviews and as somebody who was covering golf for espn were you jealous of those interviews definitely a little bit i mean there it was a real game changer when rory mcelroy like came on the podcast because Rory had been listening. He had been sort of feeling like, you know, a lot of the interviews that I give, I feel like some stuff is sort of taken out of context or people might snip one sort of bit of it. And then, you know, the podcast was sort of a really an opportunity to be like, all right, like it's going to be however long you want to stay, you know, an hour, 90 minutes, two hours. And I don't just have to sort of, you know, limit what I want to talk about. And Rory's such a fascinating, interesting character. And Chris has become such a good interviewer that, when Rory opened up, it sort of opened up a lot of doors and like suddenly Jordan Spieth wanted to come on, you know, Justin Thomas had been friendly with Chris for a long time and then he started to come on regularly. And and then, you know, they caught a sort of a, a fun wave in Max Homa, who, when he was sort of a nobody came on the podcast and was hilarious. And now Max is like a top 10 player in the world and comes on every time he wins. And it's like, yeah, this is kind of the place where you go to get those sort of interviews that, those guys aren't really giving like mainstream media outlets anymore. You wrote in your first piece for Noah laying up that ESPN did not send you to the 2019 masters, the tiger one. Correct. And you also did not go to the 2021 PGA that Phil Mickelson won. Correct. So is part of this move, not wanting to miss any more tournaments like that? Yeah, I, I look, I started covering a little bit of golf for ESPN almost by accident. I had when, I worked at ESPN, the magazine. 
I was one of the few people who was really interested in golf. And so I pitched a Roy McElroy feature in 2015 when he was the best player in the world. And I was sort of fascinated by the idea of like, what does Rory want out of his life? Does he want to be Tiger? Because it seems like he doesn't. It seems like he sort of saw how that pursuit of what Tiger wanted kind of blew up his whole life. And Rory was, had won two majors in a row at that point in 2014. So in going into the 2015 season, I was like, I'm going to follow him around pretty much everywhere. I'm going to go to all the majors. And ESPN, the magazine editors were like, yeah, that sounds great. And so I went to like three of them. And one of them happened to be the British Open where a week before Rory blew out his ankle playing soccer. And so Ispin was like, you know what, just go anyway, even though he's not going to be there and, you know, see what reporting you can do, whatever. And while I was there, I sort of said to one of the editors, you know, I kind of would like to write some columns. Like, would you be open to like a Phil Mickelson column or a Tiger Woods column? And they were like, uh, well, yeah, let's see. And I, they really kind of resonated with readers. And so the editor the following year was like, why don't you just keep coming to majors? And so for three years, I went to like all the majors and the Ryder cup and wrote lots of stuff. And then, you know, some things kind of changed to this pen and we were just sort of like reorganizing. And, and to be honest, like I was probably more valuable to ESPN as a football writer because the appetite for football is just bottomless. And so I didn't get to go to that masters where tiger won. And I felt like, it felt like a gut punch. I was like, oh man, I put in all that sort of work and time and, and this was like the reward and I missed it. And so I, you know, I tried to sort of think, well, I'll keep writing about football. I was part of our, uh, investigative sort of team for a while. And, and then I missed the Phil one and I was kind of, you know, stung a little bit about that too, in the sense of like, man, like these are two like generational things that are coming by. I was kind of joking. Like, it's like Haley's comment going by. If you miss it once, you're probably not going to get to see it again in your lifetime. And so when Rory looked like he was going to win the British Open at St. Andrews and I wasn't there, I think that was kind of the moment where I was like, I don't think I want to miss any more of these. Like, this really means a lot to me. And that's like kind of earnest and dorky, but I really like writing about golf. And so I think I really want to explore this because I just don't want to pass up that chance anymore. It's interesting hearing you talk about it because you start out wanting to do a magazine piece about this mm -hmm. and then you sort of work your way into a job where you're basically filing newspaper style <laughs> dispatches at the end of every round of a major. Yes. Which were really good. Those are some of my favorite things to read from you. Sort of a backwards arc of a career, right? Yeah, but you're pressing back towards something. Would it be even better if I'm at this major and I just watch stuff and talk to people and yeah. follow people on the course and give you a an immediate dispatch in what I see? I think in some ways, um, I, I loved being a magazine writer. I loved being a feature writer. That was kind of my dream uh, when I was 19, 20 years old in college at the University of Montana and like wanting to be Rick Riley or Steve Russian or, you know, Scott Price or Jeff McGregor or people like that, who I was just like, wow, this is really my calling. And then I, you know, the way to sort of get to do that was to go work at a newspaper for 10 years and to hope you got really lucky. And I did that. And then I had to kind of relearn like really how to write features when I got to ESPN. And I loved that. But in a lot of ways, like it's skipped a little bit of the step of like, there's a lot of 
people who who took the arc that I did in sort of their careers, and this is, isn't available anymore, where they became like a columnist. And I sort of had a little bit of snippet of that, and I liked it, and it was pretty good at it, like writing about the Ravens for the Sun. But like like a lot of people sort of my age sort of ran up against the ceiling of like, there's no spot for you. And there's no like way for you to be a columnist because we already have columnists who've been here and we're not hiring more columnists. And so like a lot of people my age went to the internet and did that and became like really good bloggers or essayists or whatever. And I just didn't have that sort of path. And so I spent like another three, four years in a newspaper thinking like, is this the, if I hit my ceiling, like, am I ever going to sort of get out of this? And so there's like always a little bit of, a little bit of an ache in me that was like, what if I had gotten to be a columnist of some kind? And, you know, like, I, I think ESPN does a lot of things right. And they're like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be quite critical of them, but they they just don't have a lot of commentary stuff anymore. Right. There's, you look at it and like a commentary occurs on television. It doesn't really occur in the written word. Whereas it used to have like page two, you know, we used to have all that stuff. And so it just kind of became a little bit more of like an itch that I felt like I wanted to scratch. And I, I was a good magazine writer, but I don't know that I was like a great one. And, you know, maybe I figured maybe I could try to sort of be a great golf columnist. <laughs> there are two beats in sports right now that are covering massive upheaval. Mm -hmm. They are college football yes. and golf. Yes. So was part of this move not wanting to miss that upheaval? Yeah. I mean, the live stuff, you know, I... Because I had listened to the No Link Up podcast for five years prior to this, I think I I saw the live stuff coming as a, like a mainstream media person in a lot of ways that other people weren't. Because it was really actually a story that people who were more connected to the sort of alternative media side, I guess, or like the underground media side, understood. Like the NLU guys were talking about live gut stuff, I, I would say, 18 months before a word of it ever appeared in on ESPN.com. And that's just like a function of like you're you're interacting with a lot of players. You're grasping that like you're only appealing to an audience of sickos, of golf nerds. And so when you know the idea first bubbled up, like they were really on top of it. And because I was friends with them, I was listening and I was talking to them about it. We were in you know WhatsApp chats, like talking about the possibilities of it. And so I raised my hand when the London event was coming up, and I was like. Phil's going to reveal himself for the first time in months after this thing. Like, we got to be there. This is really important. And so I went to the, the live stuff and it was kind of fascinating. It was like this clash of, you know, geopolitical you know, human rights stuff. And that's a, a lot of that was kind of in my wheelhouse of like, I was like, I'm not really going there to write about the golf, man. I'm going there to write about like what this all means. And so, you know, I'm calling up you know, a, a woman whose sister had been imprisoned and tortured by the, the KS, you know, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I'm calling the 9-11 families and sort of talking to them about how they feel. And they sort of felt, you know, one of the, the head of the 9-11 the families felt super betrayed by Phil Mickelson. And so all of that was kind of, I think, super interesting and important. And I, it got me really thinking, like, this is kind of some of the stuff, the third rail stuff that really more appeals to me and i i think that i can talk about this and think about this and write about this in an interesting way at at nlu that you know might been just a little bit more difficult at like a mainstream place that has its you know has its media rights and has a stake in the game and has like a much broader you know 
weight to what it has to write about and, and understand. And so, yeah, that factored in too. I mean, I, I used to cover college football a long time ago. <laughs> so I saw the mess that, uh, that was, and the sort of moral failings and implications of the way that that, uh, stuff played out. And I kind of lost my appetite for any of that stuff. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the lift stuff did appeal to me because like, you know, right or wrong, it was a huge or whatever. I don't know if right or wrong is even the right term. It was a huge generational event in golf. And so I don't think people really grasped how close it probably was to ripping apart an enormous, like, uh, you know, an instant American institution in the PGA tour. If Tiger had said, yeah, I'm going to do this. I think the dominoes could have fallen pretty quickly. And, you know, this thing that had been since, you know, the sixties had been an important part of like our Sunday afternoons in, you know, golf would have, would have looked very, very different. And, uh, you know, it, in some ways, like I <laughs> tiger saved golf in a lot of different ways. And he might've saved like the PGA tour just by saying like, Nope, I'm, I stand firm in this, which then made Rory and JT and Jordan and Scotty Scheffler and all these people line up behind him and saying, he's our guy. You could have gotten pieces about with the geopolitical component into ESPN, but it's sure. easier to get them into no laying up. Yeah. I mean, look, there's no like no politics rule at ESPN. Like that's, I think that's probably an unfair way of looking at it. But like, you know, I'm, I'm wasn't again, like I wasn't a, a commentary person at ESPN. I was a feature writer and it's always a little bit like of a blurred line of like, you know, what kind of sort of objective versus subjective, uh, stuff make it into features. And, you know, it's hard to, I think, feel like you're truly covering something in a way that you feel comfortable with. If you feel like you have to walk right down an objective line of truth. Right. And, uh, I look, it's it's a hard job to be the person who runs ESPN or to be an editor at ESPN or to sort of oversee like the big picture of things. And like it's one thing for Stephen A. Smith to take a stance on live golf. That like is totally fine with ESPN. But for Kevin Van Valkenburg, just some feature writer, like <laughs> it's a whole different kind of thing. And what does he know? Yeah. And you could make a very good case that like that is not your job. Shut up. Like go there and write about scene and write about, you know, and so you know, I wrestled with some of that of like, Hey, maybe I'm not the right person to like write about the objective truths of live. Maybe I need to sort of look at it from a little bit more of a subjective, but fair way. And, uh, I think that, you know, the way that NLU covered it to me was, was kind of in line with how I felt morally about it. And, uh, so that made it also like an easy decision. Your title at no laying up is editorial director which is straight out of the age of magazines. <laughs> what are you going to write besides these columns we're talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, a little bit of everything. I, I want to, you know, DJ Pajowski, who is the creative director. Uh, I know these these magazine names or titles are really appealing to, to an old school uh, journalist like yourself. Um, he and I really want to do just a bunch of different kinds of storytelling. And so they'll be like traditional features that you know that are for read like a magazine type feature 
uh, and hopefully are edited and have art like that. There will also be, I think, like narrative podcasts in the future. You know, like I think we've we've seen kind of the the movement towards that and haven't seen a lot of it in golf. And I think one of the best things about working for a small company is like if you come up with an idea, for the most part, you just have to get like one or two people to say yes. You don't have to have a bunch of meetings and then have another bunch of meetings and have a larger discussion. And like the stakes are lower. And so you can be a little bit, you know, take a little bit more of a risk. And it doesn't also doesn't have to be perfect. That's what's kind of fun about working for a small company is there's kind of a, a fun in the imperfection of things, right? There's there's a show that Knowing Up has done called Strapped where Randy and Neil go out and try to play three rounds of golf and stay somewhere for 500 bucks. And it's really like a travel show. It's not really like a golf show. It's just them going out and acting in, in the community. And it's better than like anything that's on golf channel it's better than any golf show you could find on netflix but it's it's just kind of like handheld camera and you know music that we can afford to clear the rights to and people you know who it's none of it being scripted all of it being sort of just stumbling through the world and it has heart and it's unbelievably good and that to me like is the essence of like what knowing up is about like yeah we can we're also really good at talking about the professional game and the amateur game and also but it's really just like talking about like going with a buddy on a golf trip and meeting interesting goofy people and and not being pretentious about it being sort of big-hearted and open and welcoming and man that's just fun that's like a whole different paradigm of like you could never do a show like at ESPN because it would be like whoa is like is there any names involved is like Rory involved can we get like you know, why, <laughs> why would we interview some guy from Reno who play who has like tattoos and who is that appealing to? Well, it's appealing to like golf sickos. Like, and so I think there are executives at big media companies who it's their job to appeal to as many people as possible, right? That's a hard job and I couldn't do it. But if you're like at a much smaller company and your audience is naturally smaller, but they're really passionate about it. And you can appeal to those people too. And those people can feel good about the content. And I, I sort of gotten past this idea of like, I want to be read by as many people as possible. It's like, no, I want to be read by people who actually really like the content and really feel connected to it. And maybe they know a little bit about me. I'm not just like some faceless name that they click on. Like it's like, oh yeah, I've seen Kevin on podcasts. I've seen him in videos. I, I actually feel invested in his takes and I'm going to tell him he's an idiot we might argue about it but at least like there's a back and forth and it's not just like another face that i don't recognize or know <laughs> this episode is brought to you by hotels.com i was traveling internationally last year i was in mallorca i didn't know the island well i said let me head to the north head towards the water let me go on hotels.com and see what they have available something preferably on the beach maybe even a gym not only did i get those things there was a kids session with exercise gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, 
all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Do you think golfers will regard you differently now that you work for No Laying Up? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And that may be positive and it may be negative. I mean, there's some, look, to call it like straight up journalism, I think is probably uh, not quite right. And so, because we're like Titleist is a sponsor of No Laying Up and so we get to hang out with players who are also Titleist players. And so it's like, there's a little bit of a shared understanding in some things that like, it's not like a traditional magazine thing where Charlie Pierce is negotiated as a part of GQ to be with Tiger Woods for two and a half hours and Tiger cracks some off color jokes and it becomes a a thing that sort of, you know, is attached to both of them for the rest of their lives. Like I'm not going to go and walk into a Titleist, shoot and like burn Jordan Spieth for something he says like that's a different relationship than what would be if I had sort of negotiated with his agent to be like this is a magazine story and everything that happens in between this and this is on the record uh and so I like it'll be a little bit of a change for me in that sense but I think I can still you know offer commentary on golf and if people think it's like well you it's biased you don't ever write about such and such player because like he's a partner yeah, you're welcome to say that. And hopefully I'll, you know, be objective enough that, you know, you can decide for yourself. But like when Knowing Up was sponsored by Callaway, they were as hard on Phil Mickelson as any anybody, if not harder. And, you know, Phil, no one from Callaway ever said to those guys, hey, knock it off. Like that's our sort of person. And I think that's, I think that like companies that are interested in sponsoring or being connected with, you know, alternative media stuff like this, they have a pretty good understanding of like what they're buying or investing in is like your authenticity, not like your silence. You know, they want you to just be associated with their brand because they feel like the people who are interested in, you know, watching knowing up, like they're going to naturally gravitate towards Titleist because it's, there's a, like an, an authenticity in both things. Right. And so that's why I think, you can just sort of tell people like, hey, you know, if you have a feeling about it and you think that we're suck ups to whatever, you're welcome to say so and you can decide for yourself. Why is golf your favorite sport to write about? 
it's a it's a lot of i think i my parents played golf like most of their my childhood and they always told me like you should you know pick up golf you should pick up golf you're never gonna your knees are gonna go bad sometime when you're older you're not gonna be able to play football and flag football and basketball and all these things and i was i really rejected it like "Ah, whatever whatever you know i'll I'll play tennis even and i kind of realized like my mom's a really great golfer and so like i was just drawn to just spending that time with them and now i have that with my own kids and my my youngest daughter is like super into golf and so it just kind of became like this gravity that like all of my relationships in my life were anchored to like when i we first started dating i took my wife golfing and she'd never she'd grown up in albuquerque and she'd never played like a single time and she probably whiffed a hundred times and then smacked one of them and was like oh my god this is super fun and all those (laughs) things like kind of coalesced in like this idea of like hey you're 45 years old like you might not get a chance to sort of do something like this again so just take a risk and do it and if it doesn't you know, like it doesn't, there's nothing across my mind, like it wouldn't work because of course it was going to work. And this, the company is like doing great. It's just not like ESPN. And so that, and I think like, I just thought chase like the joy of it and, uh, you know, go to, go to those majors and, and write about those moments that like make you feel something in your gut. You know, I mean, I think like the first time like you and I ever sort of interacted or connected it was like when i wrote about jordan spieth dumping two in the water on 12 and i was like one of the few people who was there like right on the the scene and i would because that's how i was sort of taught like you know there's a lot of people who watch the stuff from up in the media center because it's just easier to sort of see what's everything going on but i was like i'm a feature writer like i'm gonna go and smell the cigar smoke in the air and feel like the tension of what's happening as like someone's throwing away the masters and i wrote like one of my favorite things i ever wrote at espn like this like minute by minute TikTok of like what happened from the moment that he walked off the 11th green to the moment that he walked towards 13 t and i just was like really proud of it i was like that, that was a really fun thing to do it was you know it might have been 1200 words but i felt as good about it as any magazine story that i had written and i felt like yeah like i can chase that kind of like writing high too you know like i think What's fun about writing, and maybe as you mature a little bit, you realize this is you can do the kind of things that you did in like long pieces in sort of shorter form, right? And so I ESPN let me write a lot of like long pieces. I mean, I wrote like a nine thousand word story about this guy who played semi pro football in Ohio and died from like a blindside like crack block on a punt, and you know there was no like large audience for that story but they were like yeah just go do it like that's chase that kind of thing and and that was amazing and that was like this was like the first year i was at espn they let me do that and i wrote you know seven thousand words about tom brady and during deflate gate and you know stuff about lebron james and you know you name it aaron Rodgers, you know going on for six thousand words and stuff and i really sort of felt like yeah you know what like those smaller things are kind of feel like an even different like fun kind of challenge and so i think that's why i kind of felt a little bit drawn to is maybe i was like maybe you're better at this than you are at the other thing in the handful of times i've engaged in golf writer cosplay (laughs) most recently with you yeah at last year's pga when i was tagging along with you in tulsa 
I felt it was the best game day experience mm -hmm. in sports writing. Yeah. You are how far from your subjects? I mean, feet, you know, you're, I'll never forget like, you know, hearing, you get to hear like conversations between people. I mean, when I was writing about Rory, then that original thing that I was talking about, I was like, I would go and basically like stand next to him on the tee and just listen to him, like have these casual conversations with other golfers. And I remember he and Brooks Kepka before Brooks Kepka was like a major winner talking about how Tiger was mulling. It was before Tiger's, you know, sort of fall in the, in the back injury stuff. And the, certainly before the car wreck and Tiger was like mulling, not playing in like the year end thing because he, wasn't going to make the playoffs and if unless he played in Wyndham and the last thing like this is super like golf nerdy stuff but um Brooks was like I don't see why he didn't try to play one more like maybe you win and maybe it changes your whole season right and Rory was like yeah but you got to understand like he's a dad now like he's got a lot of different priorities in his life he's you just you don't really get exactly like how he's not the same person he was and I was like, you know who Rory is talking about in that moment is Rory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rory is seeing the world through like older Tiger. And like, it's just like the three of us standing on the tee. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't think you've got a lot of those moments between Tom Brady and Julian Edelman or <laughs> no. you know, Kevin Durant, <laughs> James Arden or whatever. And so that was what was cool to me is that you got to sort of see those kind of insightful things. Even after Jordan, you know, dunked two in the water, you can't be inside the ropes at Augusta, but like, I was on the front of the rope line when he was like incensed, like arguing with a rules official about taking a drop on 13. And I was like, man, this is really, or 15. I was like, man, this is really cool. Like to get to see this so up close. And, you know, sometimes the golfers get annoyed that you're there, but for the most part, they just sort of accept it as part of the, the deal, part of the tapestry of it all. A few questions about your career. Yeah. Were you like me? since you just named an SI dream team and that you grew up wanting to write for Sports Illustrated. Absolutely. And also like me, after you got a few good stories under your belt, did you realize that SI was not operating in its previous capacity and you went looking for a new Sports Illustrated to write for? So I interviewed at Sports Illustrated when I was still at the Sun and uh, it was just sort of like a casual, like, Hey, come up and chat. And I was, I, I mean, I, I couldn't sleep the night before. I mean, I was so like, this is the dream. Like, you know, and they were like, it was very nice of them to like bring me in because I don't, I hadn't had, I'd written a lot of probably good newspaper feature ideas, but didn't really know how to write like a magazine story. And they were like, yeah, you know, pitch us some stuff. Like, you know, we, and I, and I, so I, I begged the Baltimore sun. I was like, can I please like, and they were like, nope, like you can't, you're exclusive mm -hmm. to us. And that kind of like broke my heart and I sort of pouted for like six months. And I, I didn't, you know, I loved ESPN the magazine, but just didn't know how to even like make like contacts or connections or no one ever explained to me like, hey, instead of like sitting around and trying to be discovered, uh, could you like maybe put yourself out there and like try to <laughs> go for different jobs? And I remember like, you know, Grantland was starting up and you know, my buddy Wright had been hired at, at Grantland to like be the whiskey columnist. And this is uh, yeah. for the five people who don't know Wright Thompson. Yeah. And uh, I was like, maybe like I'll get a call from, you know, Bill and I'll get to work at Grantland. And this would be like, and I was, you know, and that when that didn't come, I was like, 
kind of crushed. And what I finally, like my, my friend Chris got hired at ESPN magazine to be like their back page columnist. And he was like, you need to send Chad Millman, the editor time an email, like tell him that you could write like great stuff for him and just see what happens. And so I like, was like, okay. And I did that. And Chad was like, yeah, come on up and like, come interview here. Why not? We're going to hire some new writers and maybe, you know, you can wow me. And so I just, you know, I, they flew me up to Bristol and I spent like 10 hours and like, you know, talking to anybody and everybody. And I just, I basically, I remember right saying, go up there and be the most confident version of yourself that you can possibly be, even if you're faking it. And I was like, okay. And so I just absolutely like, you know, I remember Chad said, why should I hire you? And I was like, cause there's nobody else who's going to do a better job for you. And in my head, it was screaming like, you're lying. You're, you're totally bullshitting. Of course, there's like 20 other people we could get. And he was like, I love that. I love that, you know, I, I always want to hire the people who say like, you're going to regret it if you don't hire me. And so like when I talk to journalism students now, I say like, find that whatever thing that you can. So this is like a long-winded way of saying like ESPN became my Sports Illustrated by the fact that like a bunch of my friends started sort of gravitate towards there. And then you know, SI just wasn't hiring at a time when ESPN was hiring. And then we felt like, yeah, you know what? Like SI went through a period where they wouldn't take chances on other people, like younger people. And so they missed out on like a whole generation of like really good writers uh, because they were like only going to hire Ivy League kids or they were only going to hire people who had already had magazine experience. And so all of us were like just determined to kick butt and be like, you missed out on like a lot of really good journalists. And so like a lot of my closest friends, like they would have given anything to work at Sports Illustrated, but Sports Illustrated just wasn't going to give them a chance. So we made ESPN the magazine into like our version of that and felt like we were, you know, better than them for a long stretch. And I don't know if that was true, but we told ourselves we were, and we wrote some really great stuff and we, you know, toasted every night to like, look at, we kick butt on another store like that. And it was, you know, that's when I think back about like the days that, ESPN that would be super meaningful to me. That was the stretch of like, we were felt like we were Kings of the world and we had gotten the sort of magazine life that we always wanted. What did ESPN offer to a newspaper guy? <laughs> they offered, I mean, you're talking about like salary. <laughs> no, I'm talking everything. I'm talking plane oh, tickets. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the chance to get to, I mean, they hired me and literally the first story they were like, okay, go profile LeBron James. And I was like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah, like, let's see if you can do it. And I was joking actually with Lee Jenkins about this recently because he sent me a nice note about going to NLU. He and I were both like chasing LeBron James story at the same time. And it was like, LeBron hadn't really given a significant interview since he went to Miami. It was, that was the year. And we were doing like this big one day, one game issue. And the LeBron piece was going to be sort of like the centerpiece of this. And I had sort of talked to like LeBron's PR guy who was like also like Arnold Schwarzenegger's PR guy at the time. <laughs> and I was like, hey, here's my idea. Here's why like I think LeBron should sort of, you know, talk to me. I think that, you know, him coming back to Miami and wanting to play with his friends, it's like a larger extension of who he was as a kid where he wasn't, he didn't have like this grounding of like a stable parent home. But every time he went to a basketball game and every time he like was this distributor and passed to all these people that that was a way for him to feel love and connection with other people. 
And I think that he kind of wanted that with with Wade and with Bosch. And what do you think about like talking to him, talking about that? And the person was like, yeah, that's like a really kind of spot on like to how he feels and functions. He's like, can you just wait until the end of the regular season and he'll sit down and talk with you? And I was like, I can't. Like I've literally just been hired and my deadline is in like three weeks. Like is there any way he'll do this before the regular season ends? And they're like, no. And so Lee got that interview at the end of the year and then became like the LeBron whisperer. <laughs> I was teasing Lee. I was like, because Lee's son is like a no laying up fan. And so he was kind of saying, oh, we're so happy. You know, I was telling my son about how um, you and I used to chase the same stories. And I was like, you make sure and tell your son that you landed the story and I had to do like a write around. <laughs> and then that you, <laughs> I learned to be like a write around guy, whereas you like, crushed all these amazing stories that uh you know we became the dude and so it was it was a fun kind of look back on memory lane we call those sliding doors moments <laughs> at the ringer <laughs> i mean like, there is some value in like learning to be a right around person because so many of like you know the biggest athletes just they don't want to you know give you the time of day anymore it's not like espn or sports Illustrated or whoever doesn't carry quite the same weight of like of course i'll do it like whether you're going to write favorably about me or not because like it's sports illustrator it's espn and you know so a lot of them are just like yeah i don't i don't think so and you have to figure out other ways to sort of frame the story or talk to people around them and which is like what made when i was planning to kind of do that with aaron Rodgers, and then all of a sudden he's like no i'll talk to you <laughs> like you know we spend 30 minutes on like the eve of the playoffs like talking about cancel culture and so sometimes you get lucky you know sometimes you're like you you have a, an idea of what the story might be and and then someone alters it at the last minute and becomes that much better you mentioned your previous career as an nfl writer yeah did you burn out on covering the nfl <sighs> probably a little bit i mean i had written about uh the ravens for five plus years um when i was at the sun and then basically spent the entirety of my time at espn doing some NFL stories like every single year. There was never a year that I didn't write like some sort of significant football piece. And, you know, it's, I'm a, I, like, I love talking about football with my buddy Seth Wickersham because he's so smart about different ways to understand it and see it. And so I couldn't have done that job without him because we would sort of always talk about, yeah, what's the like the actual story about? Not just like the story that, you know, the NFL is trying to sell you here, but like kind of the darker element of it, or, you know, what's the tension in, in Kirk Cousins as a <laughs> story or, you know, the third LeBron, you know, this would be the third Tom Brady story of like him spending, you know, his four game suspension at the university of Michigan and in sort of exile and going back to the place that rejected him. Uh, and now he's like going there to sort of seek comfort when like the, the NFL has kind of put him in this rejection box. And that was awesome. I loved that. And I will, that will be like, you know, valuable to me forever. But there's only like, there's a lot of NFL stories that you feel start to sort of play some of the same notes. And, um, you know, just like, you you feel like, what do, do I still have things to say about the NFL? Like, I, I'll probably feel like, yes, like eight months from now. But like in this moment, I'm like, I have a lot of things to say about golf and just how I feel about the game. I've kind of said all the things that I want to say for this moment about the NFL, and I've just like a little bit of time to recharge that. You told me before we started that during the Super Bowl, you and your new colleagues were recording a <laughs> podcast about the Waste Management Open. 
<laughs> yes, correct. It the is new called life. The, yeah, the WM now. They won't even let you call the it WM, the waste management. Me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a little bit surreal to, uh, you know, I'd been, I think I went to four or five Super Bowls. Um, and so like watching it, you know, on the screen in the background while I was talking about golf and doing like a very stupid but funny John Rom impression uh, was a little surreal. And then like a Disney hundred years of Disney commercial came on <laughs> during the Super Bowl, and I was like, "Oh, I was a part of that!" Like for like ten percent <laughs> of the company's history, uh, that's that was kind of meaningful. Yeah, know, those so. theme park passes don't work anymore, Kevin. I'm they sorry, don't. they don't. They've it's been okay. turned off. I mean, I just I feel like. I feel a little silly even talking about it in like some grand terms, like I was some super memorable Disney employee, but like I, I loved the people that I edited me. I loved the opportunities that it gave me. It totally changed my life. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have, you know, opinions about ESPN that, you know, they're, they're welcome to them, but just my time there was pretty, uh important to me and and memorable and i wouldn't trade it for anything but i I'm just also felt like i wanted to do something else last one about espn fall of 2020 we learned that espn was going to take a bunch of writers whose work had appeared on the homepage, mm -hmm. this giant fire hose of a homepage, mm -hmm. and put them behind a paywall yeah how did that affect you uh, it didn't affect me because I wasn't one of the people who was behind the paywall so on some level like it was uh nice for me because you know a lot of people still um kept reading you know had access to my stories and there was never like people weren't in my twitter mentions being like oh freaking paywall what the i'm not gonna do that. but uh i mean look espn was trying to sort of find ways to steer people towards espn plus right and if you can put a right thompson story or a seth wickersham story behind paywall or on venata or mina kimes or you know however many other people who are freaking great why not try it why not say like this, this is super valuable and we think that you'll benefit from it by you know signing up for espn plus and and you'll still get access to this stuff and you know if i was a person who didn't pay for espn plus and had always kind of gotten that content for free i would have been understandably annoyed but like i also really like i'm a subscriber to the new york times and to the washington post and i happily pay for that and i pay for new york magazine and the atlantic and so i really understand like the value in putting up some money to sort of have some skin in the game like i feel like what they do has value and so just the idea of like you get it for free and you don't there's no like relationship there you can tell me like oh you know it's a it'll just keep you coming back and eventually you'll be like a ESPN subscriber. But like, if you really love Wright Thompson stories, like what, well, that's not worth like $2 a month to you and your over larger old ESPN package. Like for sure it is. Couple more about golf before we go. Mm -hmm. How is covering golf in 2023 different than it was five years ago? Well, I think you have to be super cognizant of the fact that, um, things can change. Like, very quickly like you you know especially last year when you know cam smith wins the open championship and then like you know three weeks later he's gone and he's playing for you know he's going off to live and you know phil mickelson is sort of 
you know, gone from being like this beloved everyman figure to like an internet troll and like sort of trying to mess with people. And so there's always like, there's a lot of sort of moving parts, uh, that maybe weren't there in this game that was thought of as like sort of gentlemanly and whatever. And that's kind of fun, right? Because it, it's golf got a lot of aspects brought into it that other sports had had for a while where people would like talk shit to each other on social media and like, you know, lie to each other, backstab each other. And so there's like a, a an element. Sue each other. In yeah, some sue each other. And there was this element of drama that um, maybe wasn't uh, there. And I think in 2015, you know, Jordan Spieth is 21 and Rory McIlroy is 24. And, you know, now they're like both fathers and, you know, Justin Thomas just got married. And there's, you're seeing kind of guys who were, you know, I think they would even describe themselves as like punk kids who were just like firing at every pin, like start to kind of grasp a little bit of like, oh, maturity in some things. And I, I relate to like a lot of things about Tiger now that I couldn't when I was 30. Like I see some aspects of my own life in his life of like being a divorced dad and trying to sort of like be a good father and trying to kind of, you know, realize that your body doesn't work quite the way it used to. And those things are fun. I think to me to write about more so than like athletic dominance, uh, because like everybody gets old and everybody has to sort of figure out what that means to their own life, whether it's as a parent or a writer or, you know, an athlete and a politician, a, you know, a teacher, administrator, whatever. And so that story is kind of universal to me, whereas like there's only like so many people who you can only kind of admire greatness, uh, but we all experience like the other stuff. And so when I look at Tiger, I think like I kind of, love watching i mean i people i've said this a lot in a lot of different forums but i kind of love the michael jordan wizards years because it sort of showed like yeah I, I don't really care about the vanity of how it looks to you it still matters to me i want to do this until i can't fucking do it anymore and that's kind of awesome to me like i that's what i love about tigers i know those people like oh at the pga i wrote like a, a column that I really been been thinking about for the better part of like six months about like, you know, it's okay if you look at Tiger and you're sort of embarrassed, like, you're, oh man, I feel so bad for him. Like he looks awful. It's also okay if you look at him and you sort of feel inspired and you're like, man, that that's awesome. Because there's also like, there's a third category of people who just don't care either way. They just want to be around him to be reminded of like what this sort of like magnetic gravitational athlete was or or whatever snippet of it is and so it's like my my kids didn't see any of tiger's prime and yet like my 10 year old is like obsessed with like reading tiger woods's like instructional book and she wants to hear like all about it. she'll watch the entirety of the final round of the 2008 us open against rocco mediate and wants to like ask questions about like you know how why did his knee hurt so much and why did he keep you know falling down after shots and you know, he's just one of those athletes who you can't sort of feel like, you know, disconnected to. And, and for me, like Rory is a person who I, like, I think we have a lot of a similar like worldviews. And so to me, like, I want to sort of, you know, see more about his life because he's coming into that age now where he's a parent and he's figuring out like, 
God, I didn't get everything that I wanted out of my golfing career. And what does that mean? And that's fascinating to me too. So all of those kind of things are sort of like at a little bit of a sweet spot for me in my time and, and age and the way that I think about the world. And I'm sure there'll be like a, you know, 18 year old kid right now who is going to win seven majors or something is going to be like the, the next hot thing. And that'll be exciting too when it comes along, but it'll be different for me, you know, to sort of how I'm going to approach that at 50. You got a fascinating answer out of Tiger today here in LA. <laughs> he said, essentially, I'm not going to be an old man like Arnie and Jack mm -hmm. going out to the masters. If I don't think I can win the masters. Yeah. What'd you make of that? I think it, it just shows a little bit about how his DNA has always sort of been like, he can't conceptualize that ceremonial aspect of his life until he is truly forced to. And that's a little bit what I sort of alluding to of like, Hey, I'm going to do this until you tell me I'm not allowed through the gate anymore. And then if I have to just be the guy who like shows up at the champion's dinner and does the ceremonial tee shot, I'll see if I still want to do that. But until there's a little bit of like, until that last bit of fuel is still in the tank, I'm not even going to fucking entertain that. And I like, there's something about that. That's awesome. There's something about that. I really admire. And I think he's probably said uh, some version of that, you know, a number of times, but I think you could see a little bit maybe today when, he uh, he kind of walked himself into that question by saying, well, Arnie played 50 Masters and Gary played 51 Masters. And I was like, okay, well, this is the moment to sort of sort of tag you in that, you know, trap you in that answer of like, well, what about you? Like, do you think that you'll do that? And he just, you know, you could see him like trying to imagine himself as an old man for a, a brief second. And he wouldn't give that kind of like window into his you know psyche for many many years just because he needed to have that shield up and i think like i just kind of caught him in a, in a little bit of a moment where his sort of shields were down and he was like kind of thinking of like could he do what jack did and sort of just wave to the crowd or whatever and he was like no i won't i won't go there <laughs> and that was kind of cool like i i think i actually think that he will reach a point when you know, he's 60 and he's, you know, hasn't made the cut in the masters in a few years and whatever, probably more than that. And he's like, you know, I actually feel okay at this point, like being someone else and maybe, you know, miracle of miracles, his kid is really great at golf. And maybe he's able to sort of have a major where they're both in it and they're both playing and they get you know, paired together or they're in the same field at least and they can play practice rounds together. And who knows like if that's even like, there's a long way to go for Charlie to ever f like reach that moment of possibility. But I think there's probably a snippet of him that's like, God, that would be really cool. And I could be okay like transitioning into that, uh, but I'm just not going to go there just yet. What can Netflix do for golf with its new series, Full Swing? I think that there is a lot of hope that it would bring a larger audience to golf. I think that the, um, we've talked a lot about this sort of behind the scenes at NLU. Like the hard part is, is that golf is still just golf, right? Like we're fascinated by golf, but are sort of admitting that we're kind of dorks about it. And like there's stakes in, like it's called drive to survive in Formula One. Like you could, 
like crash and die. And so there's a there's a tension in that and a drama in that that doesn't really exist in like <laughs> is Justin Thomas going to be able to get the right allergy medicine to be able to compete in the PGA championship which is one of the storylines like in Netflix. I you know I know a little bit about the the sort of some of the people behind it and I think they're very smart and very creative. I just don't know that golf is going to have this like larger ripple that is going to bring you know other people in uh but you know it's it's worth the shot right like you're seeing now more where golf is opening itself up in a way that it's probably realizing like oh crap like we actually need to try to appeal to more people than the people who are just into golf because the people who are just into golf are very small and or very old and so as they kind of figure out like what the show is going to be like hopefully there's another season that more people more of the players will kind of give them a little bit more color investment and that will sort of become like a thing in culture but it just there's so much content out there like you know i don't know how to tell you like why why if you weren't into golf you'd really have to have someone you trusted and you knew be like hey like brian you gotta check out this netflix show because like yeah it's unbelievable that's it, it worked for formula one it did um and that's certainly what people were saying including to me i know i know you do not watch f1 but no. this is good yeah but as you say it's a little bit of the problem of golf itself right mm -hmm. people perceive it as boring and not a lot of danger and not a lot of action in the conventional sporting sense of the word and this, I think, is like the biggest issue facing Liv because what they're trying to do is is disruption, but it's not disruptive enough to differentiate itself from the product that's already seen as like stale and boring. Like I made a joke about this in like a, a mailbag for LU, but like if golf, if Live Golf was like either more serious or less serious, it would have a better case for like appealing to like an audience, right? They were more serious and it was like, this is a much better run league. Maybe like true golf sickos would be like, you know what? I really want it. Or if it was like a Nickelodeon show where like guys were getting slimed and like, you know, there was windmills on the courses, like you could get 12 and 14 year old boys who watch a ton of golf on YouTube and are obsessed with stuff like Dude Perfect whenever they do golf stuff or Good Good or some of these other kind of YouTube, you know, golfers. But it's not that. It's just like, regular golfers playing for more money and wearing shorts like that. <laughs> <laughs> don't know that that's a, a broad appeal for that there's no mm -hmm. person who's not into golf who's going to be like oh you know what i love about this is like a shotgun start i oh love that everybody has has a chance to play you know the holes starting at the same time there's that thing i think it was kyle porter tweeted today there was a video they put out and it was as you say, somewhere in the terra incognita between <laughs> the masters and holy moly, where they're like, we have teams. Yes. We're, we're having fun here, aren't we, guys? Yes. Uh, you know, and I think, I mean, look, if, if it works for live and more people are interested in golf, great for, uh, for golf at large, I guess. I mean, I still have, you know, moral qualms with uh, the funding and don't really think that there's any reason beyond the sports washing element that they're doing this. Um, but, you you know, the, the way that they've gone a lot about a lot of this stuff just feels a little bit like, you know, amateurish and like, 
they're just not particularly like well thought out. They're, they're not getting the best and the brightest, <laughs> as we say, or putting together this league. <laughs> and so, you know, Greg Norman is like the center of it. I mean, there was just a story like in Golf Week this week by reporter Adam Shupak talking about Bryson DeChambeau and how he, he, he got divorced from his club company, Puma, which had basically done everything for him that he ever wanted and built these single-length irons and other stuff. And one of the reasons that they tied it to split is because Colbert just wanted to be able to use like footage of Live Golf in their ads and they couldn't get an answer back from Live. It just like sat in the inbox for like weeks and months at a time. And it's like, oh, if you're not covering like the basic needs of your players, like how is this like growing the game? And I think there's all kinds of instances of that kind of thing where Liv is just like stepping on rakes and no one is, no adult is there to be like, whoa, wait a minute. And I think, you know, a lot of it seems to be come from top down or leadership where Norman has just like shown he's made a lot of like dumb mistakes, but he probably could have avoided and they'd be in a better spot. Last one for you. You published an item today and it had a dateline. <laughs> Los Angeles dash straight out of the Baltimore sun. How'd you decide to go with datelines on no laying up? Listen, like I wanted people to know that no laying up is, has on boots on the ground. And we were not just firing this off from a basement somewhere or a blog cabin or whatever. Uh, I don't know that we'll have datelines. It will continue. <laughs> Maybe just it'll have to be enough color and scene in the stories that will let you understand that I'm actually out at Riv. But like, you know, we're not a place that did a lot of writing from on-site uh, things in, in the past. So uh, there's just a little bit of that newspaper guy in me still who was like, yeah, I want to show that we're here in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> I got a seat in the media room, brother. <laughs> I mean, look, there mistakes may have been made <laughs> the daylight, but hopefully the, the one thing about that's nice about like the the NLU audience is that they're mostly invested in like us as a, as people or whatever. And so they're a little more forgiving about like, you know, errors in like, you know, minor errors in judgment or like silly mistakes. <laughs> I and mean, we have a, a podcast called the trap draw that where we talk about everything but golf. And part of it's kind of ethos is like you don't have to be like 100 accurate or your takes don't have to be taken particularly seriously it's just like what you how you would feel if you were hanging out with two people who you really enjoyed their sense of humor and their kind of curiosity about the world and so i love that like you know if you see like a a missing comma here and there or, you know some drop punctuation marks like we're working on it we'll get there we're just, i like i was joking like it's like when they have to reboot the millennium falcon like our website hasn't really done much in a while but it's going to be working great it's going to be getting hitting hyperdrive and light speed soon kevin van valkenberg thanks for coming on the press box always a joy brian thank you that's the press box i'm brian curtis production magic by erica cervantes i have some uh, personal news of my own i'm going to be off next week i need a week to recharge so no monday press box with david shoemaker as usual we hope to have a pod for you later in the week and then Shoemaker and I are back on February 27th with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then.